0: We started this series four weeks ago talking about a chaotic world that's looking for a superhero. And if it was chaotic four weeks ago, it's gotten so much worse in that time. You think about what happened in Orlando and then Dallas and then in Nice, France this week. I was traveling this week and just was back for a little while on Friday and turned on the news and the talking heads on the news were challenged. They didn't know whether to talk about the awful thing that happened in Nice, France with a truck driver that drove over so many people and killed them, or to talk about the coup that was taking place in Turkey. Things are happening in our world today so quickly and so evil that what would have been the story of the decade sometime back barely is the story of the week. And we're a world that's searching for someone who has answers When you think about the geopolitical world that we face and the socioeconomic world and we look at the inequities and we look at the injustice and the unfairness and the violence and the terrorism, the truth of the matter is, no one has an answer. I don't, you don't, and definitely they don't in Washington. They might benefit from talking to us here at New Spring, but the truth of the matter is, it's so complex and so multifaceted that it's really beyond us figuring out what, is, what needs to be done. And so for that reason, I've, ch- I've taken the challenge to look at the book of Revelation and sort of do an overview of that book in full weeks and focus on the person of Jesus Christ. And the reason why I want to do that is I know that he is the one who has the answer. But if you were with us last week, you found out that the world is going to get its heart broken. Because there is going to be a leader who is going to seem to have all the answers. The Bible calls him the Antichrist. And whether you have a background of growing up in church listening to sermons or whether you're purely secular and you've just gone to the movies in the last 30 years, you know about the Antichrist because this is something in culture, whether it's in religious culture and Bible study, or even if it's in secular culture, I think there's an understanding that there is going to be this leader who is going to lead the world. The whole world is going to subscribe to his leadership. And somebody would say, well, Mark, I don't think that there could be a single world system that would cause everyone to do crazy things. Well, all you have to do is look at Pokemon Go to know that that's possible. (laughs) But in all seriousness, we see that the world is going to follow this person who seems to have the answers. And I don't know what you see, but when I look at the world and I listen to the people who are craving a solution, a superhero, I I realize we're totally ripe for the person the Bible describes as the Antichrist. Some weeks ago, actually, it hasn't been, but just I think it was back in June, I was on a flight to Southern California. And I don't know what you do when you get on an airplane and you're trying to signal that you really just want to read a book and not get involved in conversation, but I'll tell you what I do. I get out my iPad and I put on my Bose noise reduction headphones, that sort of armor to say I'm really not open for a long discussion. And I did. I had a book that I was reading on my Kindle and I put on some jazz and with my headphones, and I was sitting there, I got in my seat, I'm sitting still at the gate at DFW, and up walks a gentleman, and he sits down next to me. And really, all I noted out of the corner of my eye was he was an older man. I guessed he was about 80. I found out later he was exactly 80. What I did notice was he was dressed in golf apparel, but not the kind of golf apparel I buy. He was dressed in really high-end golf apparel. He had a tailored cashmere sweater on, he had a very expensive golf shirt, he had on very expensive slacks and shoes. And he was perfectly tailored. That's all I noticed. He just sat down next to me and fastened his seatbelt. But a few minutes later, he elbowed me. <laughs> and he said, What are you reading? Well, I was reading a book about Billy Graham and his relationship with the presidents. That it was written by a time correspondent. It's not a new book. It's been out a good while. I just hadn't read it. And I was interested in Graham's relationship with the president's. And that is a great book. And any of I told him what I was reading. And he said, oh, and, and he began to explain to me who he was. And as it turns out, he founded a company that probably all of us have purchased product from. It, it, actually, it's one of my favorite companies. And I started hearing about it when I was in college. But it's one of the most successful companies in the United States. And interestingly, he had had another business, and he determined that, or he found out that when he bought this business, there was a patent for a product that the world didn't know about. And so he he got into that single product and took it to the stratosphere. As he brought in a few more products, and so it it was so interesting to talk to him because he. I've had the privilege through the years of meeting some some top top CEOs and. And and entrepreneurs and brilliant people, but he has got to be the most brilliant person I've ever talked to. I mean, he took a company from a tiny local operation, and he had factories all over the United States and Europe before he sold his corporation. And he let me know early on that he was Jewish, but when he found out I was a pastor of a church, he wanted me to also know that he had had exposure to Christianity because in Southern California, when he was a young man, he went to a Jesuit university. And so he said, I know something about Christianity. So we, we, really, we really had a good time talking. And, and, and he was telling me about the many times he had been to Israel, and I'd been studying the Six-Day War. I kind of shared some of the things with you in the first message about that. So as I began to talk about what I knew about Israel and the Six-Day War, he got very interested, and I watched his body language, because now by this point we're, we're in flight. He turned toward me at first, and then finally he moved his position in his seat to where he was facing me. And for two and a half hours we talked, and we got to be really great friends. I mean, he said he had just come back; He had an apartment in Paris. He had been visiting friends in Martha's Vineyard, and he was headed back for his place in Palm Springs. And he said, "I've got to travel tomorrow." He, at this point, he gives, he gives lectures at Stanford Business and UCLA and USC and Oregon and a lot of West Coast colleges and their business schools. And he said, "I've got to travel tomorrow." He said, "I so wish I could be here because I'd love to play golf with you and just learn so much more." And we swapped information. But in the process of our talk, I felt comfortable enough asking him a question because he had said, you know, I'm Jewish and you're Christian. And we talked about that for a few moments because I said, well, isn't it really interesting that we agree on so many things? If you have a Bible in your lap, separate the Old Testament from the New Testament. And what you'll have in your left hand when you have the Old Testament is about two-thirds of the Bible. And I said, isn't it interesting that we agree on so much? Hey, I believe the book of Jeremiah is as inspired of God as I believe the book of Luke is inspired. I said, isn't it interesting that we agree on so much and yet we probably disagree on the most important issue of all? And when I felt comfortable asking him the question I wanted to ask him because he had said that the difference was that they were still looking for the Messiah, I asked him this. I said, well, when the Messiah comes, How will you know him? Now, I'm just going to ask you to take my word for the fact that I was talking to one of the most brilliant men in America. I'm talking to a guy that I am so delighted to spend two and a half hours with because he was a business genius. I'm talking to a guy who's made multiple trips to Israel who knows the Jewish history far better than I ever will. And I asked him the question, how will you know the Messiah when he comes? And he said, I don't know. He said, I guess I will know him the way you knew Jesus. And when I heard this brilliant man answer that question, it hit me that the world is ripe for anyone who comes along. Because I think that my friend there expressed the opinion of so many in our world today. We really believe somebody out there has got the solution. We don't know how we'll recognize him. We'll just know him. Do you know what that reminds me of? Have you ever met a desperate single? You say, Mark, I am a desperate single. <laughs> I, I, you, know, you know what I mean? Have, have you ever met somebody who's had her heart broken a lot of times? Or his heart broken a lot of times? And they're, they're saying, I'm just, looking, I'm just looking for anybody. And, and everybody around them knows she's going to get her heart broke. And that's sort of what I feel like when I look at our world today. The world is like, well, we don't know who we're looking for. We just, we know we need a superhero, and, and I guess we'll know him when we see him. But the problem that we have with that is the person the Bible says is going to come along is a, is a person who's going to break the world's heart. Well, there is a superhero coming, and, and we're, we've been talking about him already in the first three installments of our series, and we've called him Captain Amazing, but you know really his name is Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you that this title today, the title of today's talk is The Captain of the Lord's Army. It's my favorite title, and I want to take you back in the Bible to the book of Joshua. And I want to show you where we find these exact words, The Captain of the Lord's Army. But I think what we're going to see in this text is really important for you and me. Because you and I are 21st century millennial generation Christians. And I want to show you something from the Bible that we need to hear today because it may reorient the way that we look at God. The context is this. Joshua has become the leader of the nation of Israel. They have been brought out of Egypt by God, and they are on their way into Canaan, the promised land. Moses has died, and Joshua now faces the incursion, excursion into Canaan. This is an untested group of people. They have not fought any major armies. They have not fought any major wars. And right before them is the city of Jericho, the greatest challenge that they will ever undertake. Jericho is fortified by a massive wall structure. It is so high and so thick and so rigid that other nations have failed in trying to take Jericho. And now here is Joshua, he has an untested group of people, a very untested army, and he is trying to sort out how he, as a brand new leader, is going to lead his people to take the city of Jericho. He is puzzled. And as he, one night, sits up looking in the distance and seeing the city of Jericho, something happens. And that's what I want to take you to. When Joshua was near Jericho, Joshua 5.13, lifting up his eyes... He saw a man in front of him with his sword uncovered in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and said, are you for us or against us? Now, I really believe that Joshua, when he saw this individual, recognized the glory and the splendor and the power of this person. So much so that he recognized if this person were for them, they were going to win. If he was against them, they weren't just dead, they were so dead. So Joshua is asking him the question, are you on our side? Or are you on their side? Now, I should tell you who this person is. This person is the person we know of as Jesus. I don't like theology all that much. Theology is just the systematized study of God. But there is a theological term for what Joshua has encountered. I'll tell you what it is. This is called a Christophany or a theophany. It is a visual manifestation of pre-incarnate Christ. In simple words, it's just Jesus before he was born in Bethlehem. You realize, of course, Jesus did not begin in Bethlehem. He was God who became human, not human who became God. So throughout the Old Testament from time to time, he would appear in his glory as he appeared with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel in the fiery furnace when Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the king said, didn't we throw three men in the fire, see four, and the form of the fourth is like the son of God. Or it was like he appeared to Abraham before the destruction of Sodom. So this is Jesus, the person we know. But he's not Jesus the humble carpenter from Galilee. He shows up as Jesus that we see in Revelation chapter 1 in all of his glory with his sword drawn. So Joshua knows if this guy is for us, we're going to win. If he's against us, we're going to lose. And so Joshua asks him what appears to be the salient question. And it's the question that many of us ask today. Are you for us or against us? And Joshua wants to hear yes. Or he knows he could hear, I'm on the other side. I'm for you or I'm against you. Verse 14. And he said, no. That's an interesting answer. Because Joshua wants to know, are you on their team? You on our team. And Jesus says, no. In some of the worst of the Civil War, if memory serves correct, I think it was 1862 when the Union was losing One of Lincoln's aides said, Mr. Lincoln, do you believe that God is on our side? And Lincoln said, that's not the question. The question is, are we on God's side? And Lincoln said this, God is always right. And that's exactly what Joshua was experiencing here. Joshua was saying, are you on our team? And Jesus comes along and says, no, I'm not on your team, and I'm not on the other side. Look at what he said. I have come as captain of the Lord's armies. Then Joshua, falling down with his face to the earth in worship, said, What is my Lord to say to my servant? This is why I know it was an angel, because every time a human tries to worship an angel, the angel always stops them and won't receive the worship. This person received Joshua's worship. This was Jesus. And the captain of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your shoes, for the place where you are is holy. And Joshua did so. Men, I would love to just stop this message right now and preach on the place where you are. Because see, Joshua was focused on the place of Jericho and Jesus came along and said, forget about Jericho. I'm here. Just focus on the place where you are. Listen, so many of us are scared to death about what's happening in Washington this year. We're scared about the election. We want this person to get in or that person to get in and it's as if all our hopes are pinned up to some sort of political solution in Washington. I think if Jesus were here he would say, get your mind off that place and get your mind on this place because if you're in the presence of God, you're going to be okay. Well, if I knew how to preach, I'd like to preach that this morning. And don't you find it interesting that when Jesus was there, he said, Joshua, take off your shoes. In other words, let's not have anything between you and me. Now, here's the thing, I guess, that's most salient for us with our series Jesus came along and said, I'm not for you and I'm not for the other side. He's saying, I am the side. It is not important that Jesus line up behind us. It's important that we line up behind behind Jesus because he's the captain. He is the captain of the Lord's army. Okay, now for the next few moments, it's going to feel like drinking out of a fire hose because I have an impossible task before me. You do realize that when the Bible talks about how this world is going to finish up, As it is today, it isn't just in the book of Revelation. It's as far back as the book of Genesis. It's in the historical books of the Old Testament. It's in all the prophets practically. And then it's in Jesus' discourse in the Gospels. It's in the church epistles, definitely in the book of Revelation. The entire book of Revelation, probably about half the book of Daniel. So I have the responsibility of bringing about 25% of the Bible to you in about 18 minutes and 37 seconds. So here's what we know. How is this going to end? Well, first of all, we realize the world can't continue as it is. And so there is a seven-year period of time where everything is going to wind up. Let's discuss that seven-year period of time, how it starts and how it ends. The seven-year period of time that we know of as a tribulation, the front bracket of it is going to be Jesus coming back to receive his people. God has an MO. He has a way of operating. And his way of operating is historical. Historical. What I want to do now is I want to take you to the very words of Jesus, and I want you to hear him tell you and me how it's going to work out when he comes back. You ready? This is in Luke 17, verse 24. When the Son of Man returns, it will be as it was in Noah's day. In this sense, the word day here refers to era. So Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to come back, and when I come back, it's going to be similar to the way it was in the days of Noah. Noah. Well, if you go back to Genesis six, you see how it was in the days of Noah. The Bible says that the minds of people were on evil continually. In fact, let me—I left out something. He said the minds of people were only evil continually. Wow! Go, have you been to a movie lately? I mean, some friends invited us to a movie this week, and just the previews were were wretched. And then I sat there and I thought about Genesis 6. People's minds are only evil continually. And so the Bible says, Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah. In those days, people enjoyed banquets, parties, weddings, right up to the time. Look at this. Noah entered the boat and the flood came and destroyed them all. In other words, Jesus is saying everything rocked on, God's people right in the middle of everybody, everybody together, everybody doing what they do every day, normal, ordinary stuff, and it's right up into the day that two things happen. Number one, God gets his people out, and number two, judgment falls. Now Jesus is going to go in for a second helping here. And the world will be as it was in the days of Lot. People went about their daily business, eating, drinking, buying, selling, farming, building, until the morning Lot left Sodom. Then fire and burning sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Yes, it will be business as usual right up to the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So very clearly twice, Jesus lays out God's MO. When God is going to bring down judgment, the first thing he does is he gets his people out, and then the judgment comes. So the first thing that will happen at the end is that God will come to get us. Paul was writing to the believers in a city called Corinth, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, let me tell you a wonderful secret. The word secret there comes from the Greek word mysterion. We got a word mystery from it. It means something that you can't figure out on your own that God has to reveal. Paul said, let me give you a wonderful secret. We will not all die. Hey, that's news. Last night I went up to the hospital at 10:30 to hold the hand of a new new springer who's dying, and my heart goes out to them, to her family, and to her. But the family said she knows where she's going. But the truth of the matter is, according to Jesus, not everybody's going to die. Have you ever heard the expression "nothing certain but death and taxes"? It just means nothing certain but taxes. (laughs) Yeah, that's certain, isn't it? Death's not certain. I, I preached a funeral for a beautiful lady, 92 years old. She bought her casket 35 years before she died. It's true. You know what? Some of you have made funeral arrangements. You've already paid the funeral director your money. And you're not going to need it, maybe. You won't get a refund in heaven, I don't think, but let the Antichrist use your casket. Paul is saying, look, let me tell you something. Not everybody's going to die. But we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment. Now, the Greek word for a moment there means a time frame that cannot be divided. Well, we know a second, even though it's brief, can be divided because we talk about milliseconds. But in other words, this is a time frame that is so, so small it can't be divided. So here's what you need to understand. When Jesus comes back, it's not going to be something that's like a long, drawn-out process. It's just boom, boom. You're, you're, You're here, you're there. In a moment in a blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown, for when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever, and we who are living will be transformed. This is not what my sermon is about, but you could hear that verse, and you could say, well, wait a minute, Mark, I'm a little puzzled here, because I always believed that when my loved ones died, they went to heaven, but now it's talking about a resurrection and rising from the graves. I mean, the people that I love who have died, where are they? Well, this is a message that the Bible gives us over and over, but let me give you the one that you might be most familiar with. When Jesus died, where was his body? He was in the grave, right? A couple of well-meaning men tried to embalm him. They had deep pockets, no experience with embalming a body because they wrapped Jesus' body up with 75 pounds of spices. If he hadn't been killed on the cross, the spices would have sure done the job. A couple of women came to the tomb after the Sabbath, tried to do right with the men screwed up. Jesus was gone. But where was his body? He was in the tomb. I mean, if you had if somehow been able to get past the seal and the Roman guards and open the tomb of Jesus, you'd have found his body wrapped up in the grave. <clears throat> but where was Jesus? What did he say to the thief? When the thief believed on Jesus, Jesus said, Today you will be, prepositional phrase, with me, second prepositional phrase, in paradise. So when Jesus died, where was he? His body was in the grave. His soul and spirit were with God. Remember what Jesus said, last thing he said on the cross, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. Yeah. So what happens when Jesus comes back, those of us who happen to be alive at the time, if indeed we are, we will be instantly transformed, given our glorified bodies, which at my age, I'm really glad to be thinking about now. And then those who have died will, will receive their new bodies. And it will happen all in an instance in, more than, in, in less time than we can imagine. Now, on the earth, though, there are going to be seven years that are horrific. I haven't spent a whole lot of time in our perusal of the book of Revelation talking about the awful things that are going to happen in the tribulation. For one reason, it's not pleasant to look at. But if you read chapter 6 through 19, you'll discover that some awful things happen. Why do they happen? Two reasons. First of all, the bad things happen on the earth because God is basically saying, look, you don't want me, I'll step out, I'll let you experience the world without me. So we live in a world today already that is edging God out more and more. So God is saying, look, if I'm the problem here, I'm going to step out and I'm just going to let you have it on your own. That's horrific and I'm glad I'm not going to be here. I wouldn't want to be in a world like that. But there's no getting around this second thing, and that is that God is going to pour out judgment himself. And this is in Romans chapter 2, verse 5. God says, Because you're stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That isn't something I like to think about. And again, I'm glad I'm going to be gone when God pours out his judgment. But when you look at the awful things that happen, the tribulation, it is God exiting himself and then also God bringing judgment on the earth. Now, to dive into that real quickly, during that seven years, there's chaos, there's global conflicts. And you know here's the thing when you start reading about what happens at the end time you realize so much of this information is spread here and there in the Bible you almost have to read it and develop a composite picture from what we read and so possibly we read things and we might be a little bit wrong but here is my view and I'll give you that and tell you that it's it's only my view. It does appear to me that the tribulation begins with a war. And this particular war is sketched out for us in the book of Ezekiel chapters 37, 38, and 39. I believe this particular war could happen before the tribulation begins or it could happen right after it begins. But when you look at this particular invasion, the players are pretty clear. Because when you look at the list of nations that are spoken for us there in the book of Ezekiel, they correspond to nations today. And again, one more time, let me give you the... the, The the scriptures here Ezekiel 37, 38, and 39. What's interesting about Ezekiel 37 is it's all about how Israel becomes a nation in the last days. Well, that happened in 1948, and as I share with you in week one, Jerusalem became part of Israel in 1967. So, what you read about in Ezekiel 37 happened in the last 70, 75 years. So, moving on, it, it talks about in the last days, Israel is going to be invaded by a coalition of nations spearheaded by two nations. Those two nations are Russia and Iran. Good morning, America. How are you? I mean, that's I used to read that and think, oh, I'm, you know, it would be like Russia and Iraq would be coalescing, and, or it would be Iran and this nation coalescing. But for the first time, we see this tight bond that we have between Putin and Russia and Iran. And so beyond that, there are several other nations. Oh, by the way, one of the ones on the list is Turkey. Now, I don't know if we're right there. It's just interesting how it's all lining up right now. But it, does, it, it is very clear in these three chapters that this coalition will attempt to invade Israel. What's significant about that is the Bible clearly indicates that God is the one who is going to stop them. But the Western powers, the Western nations, will take credit for it. God will win this incredible victory, but the Western nations, most likely European-centered, will take credit for it. And consequently, they will be at the front of the line in establishing this new world order that will appear during the tribulation period of time. And who knows exactly how that will work. I mean, Europe looked all set. With the EU, but after Brexit, and then who knows what's going to happen after the rapture because the personality of a lot of Western nations are going to be very different when all the Christians leave the room. But what we do know, and I try to stay away from speculation, what we do know will happen during this last seven-year period of time is there is going to be a single system of commerce, there's going to be a single system of religion, there is going to be a single system of government. And in this commerce system, which is spelled out for us in Revelation chapter 17 and 18, it indicates that it's going to be so successful that there are going to be some deep pockets that get very rich during this time. But it's kind of a global Ponzi scheme. If you can imagine a world economy where we forget all national debts and we rid ourselves of currency fluctuation, and with the, mark, you know, with the mark of the Antichrist, we pretty well get rid of all identity theft. I mean, you could, for a brief period of time, merge all of the economies and have what appears to be a glowingly successful product. The only problem is... When it collapses, there is no economic system, no no economic tow truck to pull that one system out of the ditch. But as we learned last week, that in this period of time, Satan has an agenda, and he works best in chaos. Now, I can't prove this. I'm just telling you when I read Scripture, this is what it looks like. There are 10 systems, 10 Western systems, whether they're nations or conglomerates, I don't know. But there are 10 systems with 10 leaders. And as Both there is the success of this economic system and chaos continues. There is going to be one individual that keeps rising to the surface. I don't think personally that he is going to be a leader of a nation. I think he's just going to be a Mr. Fix It that's going to have answers and solutions for the world's problems. And as the problems get worse, he gets brighter. And eventually the Bible tells us he is going to be the one leader. Now, I used to listen to sermons about this when I was a kid and think, oh, I'm skeptical about this. How is the world going to follow one leader when you think about you know, national sovereignty and you think about the differences between people groups and all of that? But I wasn't prepared for the 21st century when I heard all those messages. I didn't know how deep we were going to get into celebrity worship. I didn't have any imagination of what social media was going to be like. I didn't have any idea what it was going to be like when nations of the world became less nationalistic and more global in thought. So even though I struggled with this 25 years ago when I heard that there's going to be a single leader who's going to basically be the ruler of the whole world, I thought it was crazy back then. As I look at the world today, it doesn't look so crazy. I mean, it still is crazy. It just doesn't seem as unlikely. What we do know from the Bible is that many are going to accept him as the Messiah. The problem is he is Satan's Messiah. And as the years pass, these seven years pass, the disasters keep on coming. Guys, remember something about Satan. He has great power, but he can't fix anything. All he can do is make things worse. Do you remember when God sent the 10 plagues on Egypt and some of Pharaoh's magicians could do magic? When you go back and you look at what they did, they could only make the problem worse. They could only make more frogs. It couldn't make the frogs go away. And that's how Satan will be in the tribulation. He's going to have power. And the Bible says he is going to do things that seem incredible. But everything that he does is going to make the situation worse. And as the situation gets worse, the Bible tells us, and this is hard for me to wrap my mind around, but the Bible says that things get so bad that as much. And I don't know how to read the percentages in Revelation, but it looks like as many as perhaps half the world's population could die. And even though that sounds bizarre, we're reading all kinds of things about superbugs and drug-resistant superbacteria. You've got the Olympics about to happen in Rio, and a lot of people, a lot of athletes, not even participating. They've discovered a bacteria, drug-resistant bacteria, in the waters of Rio. According to Reuters, the CDD has said that there's a bacteria that's so drug-resistant and so dangerous that as many as half the people who get infected by it could die. When we look at the terrorism and the trouble in our world, and then on top of that, Revelation indicates that it isn't just that. There are demonic creatures that, that harm people. It sounds so wild. But instead of taking it any further this morning, let me just read you the words of Jesus, because I think he sums up the tribulation in one sentence better than the rest of us could even begin to try. Here's what Jesus says. For then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. When you look at the horror that this world has already experienced, the horrible wars, Stalin's purge, the Holocaust, and go back to the Crusades, and you go back to all the horrific things that have happened in our world, and to hear the words of Jesus say, during that time, it'll be worse than it's ever been before or worse than it'll ever be again. And Jesus goes on to say, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. Jesus, 2,000 years ago. Well, how how does it wrap up? (laughs) Well, I'm going to, I have two minutes and 13 seconds according to that clock. So I'm going to do my best to tell you what a whole bunch of the Bible says real quickly. This This is shorter than the, Cliff note version: The economy collapses. That's in Revelation 17 and 18. And then all the world powers do what they do. And economies collapse. They fight. There's going to be a series of wars somewhere between two and four major wars. And finally, it's going to wind up concentrated in Israel because one thing we've learned about world history from the Old Testament to modern days is that if there's trouble, it seems like it always gets blamed on Jews. I never have figured that out, but it's like, I mean, look at World War II. What's the problem in the world? Hitler said the Jews. This tiny people group. And I think it's because people hate God and they're the nation that God has chosen. So the Bible says in Revelation 16, verse 16, and the demonic spirits gathered all the rulers and their armies to a place with the Hebrew name Armageddon. That's the Jezreel Valley in Israel. And all the nations are gathered. And basically they're saying, look, we may go down. Our economies may be in, ram- in shambles. We may go down, but the last thing we're going to do is we're going to take out Israel. And that's all Jesus can take. Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the word of God. The armies of heaven, that's you and me, dressed in finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses, From his mouth, from Jesus' mouth, came a sharp sword. I think it's just a statement to talk about the power of his word. Do you remember when Jesus was arrested and and Jesus said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. In the Greek, all Jesus said is the word, I me. That's the word, I am. Jesus said, I am. And the force of Jesus' statement caused the soldiers to fall back like dead men. It's the power of the word of God. He spoke and the world came into existence. So when Jesus comes back, you have to realize we're riding with him, but Jesus never tells his followers to hurt anybody. (laughs) We're just going to ride with him. And Jesus is going to speak, and the power of his voice will take care of business, as we used to say. The armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. He he treads out the winepress, and the words from the battle hymn of the republic come from this particular part of the Bible. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I heard a loud shout from the throne. This is Revelation 21 now. We've jumped to the end of the Bible. Saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. You understand that when Jesus comes back, he will ride into the city of Jerusalem. He will sit on the throne and he will rule and reign. I cannot wait to hear Jesus' first press conference. (laughs) Sir, um... What are you going to do about health care? Um, it's not really going to be an issue. I mean, what do you, you realize that when Jesus takes charge, I mean, it is going to be the world as God intended it to be from the very beginning. There won't be any problem with assault. There won't be any problem with rage killings. There won't be any problem with racism. There won't be any problem with assault and abuse because when Jesus takes charge, you understand, he's not coming to line up behind anybody. He is coming to be king of kings and lord of lords. Yeah. Well, I, and I'm sure, you know, in standing before a crowd this great, in the internet, television, somebody can say, you know, Mark, I think you are crazy. And you'd be right probably on that. But you wouldn't be right if you think this is crazy. So I I just, I don't know. It's not for me. Listen, guys, as I shared with you last week, my role is not to be popular. We're going to all stand before God someday. And I'm going to be held to a tighter accounting than you will be and God is going to call me before him someday and he is going to ask me were you a weasel that wanted your own popularity or were you a man that belonged to me who spoke my word to my people let me just tell you the bible says this is in Reve- and we're just looking at the end of the bible revelation 20 verse 11 i saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it the earth and the sky fled from his presence but they found no place to hide and i saw the dead both great and small standing before god's throne And the books were open, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, recorded in the books. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. You know, people, I have non-theist friends. And I'm grateful to be able to count them among my friends. And they'll basically say something like this to me. They'll say, Mark, are you telling me that you're God? If I don't subscribe to your particular religion, are you telling me that you're God? will send me to hell? No, I'm not saying that in a million years. First of all, who cares what I say in the first place? Do you realize that when people stand before God at this judgment, the books are going to be open? In other words, people at this judgment are not judged by what religion they were. They're judged by what they did. See, God is not going to let anybody who goes to hell point the finger in his face and say, I don't deserve to go. God's going to say, I got the evidence here. I mean, let me ask you a question. Who among us here, if all of a sudden our entire life, everything we ever did, everything we ever thought, was broadcast or put forward on these screens up here? I don't know about you, but I would run screaming from this place. And you understand, God's not, God's not depending upon testimony. God's not depending upon what evidence is allowed in his courtroom. God knows everything. And so at this particular judgment, people are going to be judged by what they've done. And nobody's going to be able to say, God, I'm perfect, I belong in heaven. God's going to say, no, I got, I, got the, I got the information, I got the evidence. You know, here's the good thing. If you've settled out of court with God, you won't even be at this judgment. You'll be at what we read about two weeks ago. I mean, you'll be going to a different throne. You'll be going to the throne that's surrounded by a green rainbow, signifying the promises of God and everlasting life. Truth be told, every one of us here, if we were at this judgment, our life would speak against us, but God is is saying, please don't go there. I want to take you to the very end of the Bible, and the last page, the last significant message. It's like God is signing off, and he's got one more thing to say to you. Now, later on, there's stuff that says, don't mess with the book of Revelation, and John is saying, even so, come, Lord Jesus, and the grace of our Lord be with you all. Amen. Amen. That's the last verse of the Bible. But the last significant message of the Bible is in verse 17. Let me read it. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Whoever's thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him come and take the free gift of the water of life. Do you notice how many times God says, Come. God is saying, come, come now. Don't go to this judgment. You don't want to go to the judgment and have everything you've done stand against you. Settle out of court. Come now. I mean, God is saying, come. Let anyone come freely. Come broken. Come as you are. Come before God as a sinner and ask his forgiveness while there's still time and the door's still open. God is saying, the spirit of God says, come. And those of us who have already come, we say, come. And the one who is thirsty, God says, let him come. And if you hear, God says, please go tell somebody else the message for me. Come. God is saying, don't anybody go to hell. If you're here today and you say, Mark, I want to make sure that I'm part of God's family. Well, it's It's free. In Re- Romans chapter 10, verse 13, the Bible says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, you're part of whoever, and you can call. Can't you? You know, nobody will be in hell who wanted to accept Jesus Christ. There is not one person in hell who wanted to accept Jesus Christ. And if you want to accept him, you can do it today. In other words, basically you're accepting him, living the life that you can't live, and paying for your sins on the cross. See, Jesus took your hell for you. And if you're willing to settle out of court, you can do it today. Whether you're in this room, the North Auditorium, watching online around the world, if you're watching on television, you can pray with me. Here we go. I'm going to pray a prayer. If you want to join me, I invite you. Come. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I don't want to wait till the books are open. I want to come now. I ask you to forgive me. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for adopting me. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I know you may have a million questions. I have a book I want to give you and a DVD. If you'll just go back to guest services and say, I pray with Mark, that's all it'll take. Next week, we start the biggest series I've ever been part of. It's called Come Clean. See you then. God bless.